Well, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. I'll pull the text up on the screen. Be reading out of the English Standard Version. You can also find our passage on page uh, 873 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his people. So one of the features of Luke's gospel is his ability to slow time down. Uh, for a while, we have been looking at how Jesus uh, is been instructing his disciples uh, somewhere around chapter 9. Uh, Luke says he, he turned, his, it, Jesus turned toward Jerusalem. And even though there's 24 chapters or so in the gospel of Luke, uh, the uh, uh, from chapter 9 onward, it's Jesus turning toward Jerusalem and slowly making his way there. But if you actually look over the timeline, it's a relatively short period of time as far as we can tell. And so he's been teaching his disciples of what life and ministry is going to look like uh, once he is not with them physically. And we read the gospel here and, and we hear the words of our Savior and our Lord. We know that Jesus is our King. And when you read the gospel, it, it, it can be a bit jarring to see how Jesus is treated, right? We get like, hey, you know, like that's, that's Jesus. You can't talk to him that way. You can't do that to him. I remember even as a new Christian reading the gospels, I, I actually always hated reading the end of the gospel because I hated reading about what they did to Jesus. You know, it just, it bothered me. It disturbed me because this is my Lord. This is my Savior. And it, and it, and it should. We shouldn't, uh, you know, it's not, we're not glad for what he suffered, but we are thankful for what he suffered, and uh, and so uh, it, it, and so we need to, it, but we also have this tendency to look at Jesus and we kind of we treat him as a superhuman being that just kind of does stuff and it's not hard for him. It's not a challenge, and so he's the savior, and it's not really hard for him to hard for him to uh, to be the savior. But what the Gospels are made clear to show is that he is truly human. He's fully human. He's empowered by the Spirit. But as he's, as he's going through, it is not an easy thing to be the Savior. There are a lot of obstacles that Jesus has to overcome, has to, has to move through in order to be the Savior. And we encounter two of them in this passage. Uh, first, Jesus must overcome deadly threats to his life and to continue his ministry. And secondly, Jesus must overcome even the unbelief of Israel to be the Savior. And we're going to look at each of those this morning. 
So first, our Savior overcomes deadly threats in verses 31 to 33. And so Jesus is teaching a group uh, uh, and, uh, um, uh, of people, and, and some Pharisees come up to him, and they give him what, uh, what we can call a, a unfriendly warning. Not really sure. This is kind of a, not really sure what's going on here. But these, this group of Pharisees warns uh, Jesus that Herod, uh, this is Herod Antipas, uh, he, he wants to kill him. And now this was the local ruler who earlier Luke recorded had beheaded John the Baptist. And even though, uh, uh, you know, Herod had said he kind of, you know, felt bad about doing it, uh, he was no doubt glad to be rid of John the Baptist meddling in his immoral personal uh, behavior and public behavior, really. Uh, But there's a lot of questions we don't have answer to about this group of Pharisees. Okay, um, you know, did Herod actually issue a threat uh, against Jesus, or are these Pharisees just making it up to get Jesus out of there? Uh, if Jesus uh, leaves the area, then Herod can't do anything to him, and if he leaves the area, then the Pharisees don't have to deal with Jesus anymore. So maybe they made it up. Or, you know, maybe Herod did issue the threat, uh, but he's in such cozy connection with the Pharisees that they were glad to report it back to Jesus because apparently they are able to report back to Herod Jesus' response. They've got a line of communication set up with Herod. And so it could be that the Pharisees are just simply temporarily aligned with Herod. And, uh, and so um, now it could be that these are uh, you know, the, some of the few Pharisees that actually liked Jesus and were genuinely concerned with him. Uh, but I would consider this the less likely option here. Uh, at, at any rate, there is a death threat, whether real or imagined, made against Jesus. And we ought to remember that whenever the gospel is proclaimed, where true ministry is present, there will be opposition to it. People will push back, oppose, and even threaten those who are ambassadors of Christ. And so uh, let's, let's move on now to consider Jesus' response, his very bold response. Now, I was, I was reading this, I couldn't help but but think of the circumstances in the, a similar circumstance in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, there, the enemies of Israel were upset uh, over the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so they paid uh, someone, um, they paid off somebody that was near Nehemiah that, that, to get him to go tell Nehemiah that people were coming to kill him and that he should run and hide himself in the temple complex. Uh, but Nehemiah saw through it. Uh, stating to this person, he said, I can't stop the work that I was sent to do to go run off and hide in the temple. And later he, d- he found out that the whole thing was just a setup by his enemies uh, to, to smear Nehemiah as a coward and to undermine the work that he was doing, to undermine his leadership. And I, I get the sense that there's something similar at work here. But Jesus' response was no less bold, you could even say bolder than Nehemiah's. He begins by calling Herod a fox. Now, calling someone a fox today can mean several things. It could mean that they're attractive. Jesus is not saying that. Um, It could mean that they're sly or cunning. And that's more closer to what he's doing here. But to call someone a fox even in that way of being sly or cunning, it's kind of like a a backhanded compliment, right? It's a a way, it's still a, a compliment. You're saying something nice about them even if it's got a negative overtone to it. But in the New Testament, 
And in that period, in that ancient time, it was not a compliment to call someone a fox. To call someone a fox was a contemptuous term to use. It had a variety of meanings then. That's basically calling them a worthless person, someone who's slanderous, someone who is a person of insignificance, which rulers loved to be be called someone of insignificance, uh, calling them treacherous or even a destroyer. Uh, even further in the Jewish uh, in Jewish law, foxes were scavengers and predators, and therefore unclean. And so, you know, if anything, this was not a compliment, even a backhanded compliment that Jesus was paying Herod. Uh, he is uh, he is uh, um, he is being, you could say, even contemptuous uh, of Herod and uh, Herod's threat. He's basically saying to Herod, "Look, I'm working my miracles right now." I'm preaching right now. I will finish at my appointed time, and then I will be on my way to Jerusalem because that's where prophets go to die, as we all know. But, uh, but you are not going to interrupt my schedule. Your threats, your authority are not going to throw me off course. Now that today, tomorrow, third day scheme indicates a short period of time followed by a crisis moment. Um, but, uh, um, and there may be some, uh, some, especially for Luke, for his readers, uh, obviously the resurrection has already occurred, so there may be some hints there, even as well as, as the coming resurrection. But Jesus is basically saying, look, I've got a timetable that I'm working on, and it's the Lord's timetable. It's the Father's timetable, time table, not yours. And so I, and you, you are not in control of my life or my death. And so the, now the sarcastic reference to Jerusalem is both prophetic and historically true. Jesus is largely, his, his tone, his speech in, this, in these five verses in Luke is, is basically him taking that, man, that, pro, that mantle of the prophet on. And, uh, and, and now Jerusalem was not technically the only place where prophets had been killed in the past, but it was the place where most prophets had been killed. And, you know, if you wanted to decrease your life expectancy as a prophet, go do your work in Jerusalem, right? And so in saying this, he indicates that the wickedness of Jerusalem is widely known. And it is going to come to a head particularly when they kill the Messiah. And so the real threat to Jesus' life does not come from puppet kings like Herod, but actually comes from his own people. But even then, only on God's timetable. More on that in a minute. But in this particular moment, we need to, cons- need to consider and appreciate the determination of our Savior. Because the determination of our Savior to endure threats and opposition like this ultimately results in our salvation. Jesus knows that he's going to die and that he is going to die relatively soon. He also knows that he's not going to die in Galilee under the sword of Herod. Rather, his death will come at the hands of the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem. Here is your Savior and mine, who cares nothing for his own life, who plans to give himself over to death, and who will not be swayed or dismayed or thrown off by threats of powerful men. I mean, what if Jesus had listened to him? What if he had run off? He didn't. 
he continued his course, even the course that led him all the way to the cross. His determination resulted in our salvation. And his salvation produces our determination as his people. That is, we look to Jesus as the author of our salvation. And if, and if, and if Jesus was not thrown off from the saving work that he had been sent to do, shall we be thrown off from the work that Christ has commissioned us to do here? Will anything separate us from the love of God, the apostle asked? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, whom he has justified by the blood of his own son? Now, this doesn't mean that there's never a time for God's people to flee, all right? It happens. John Calvin fled France because he would have been killed there. Many a reformer, many a Christian fled. Many Christians fled during, as recorded in the book of Acts. When the great persecution fell upon Jerusalem and they fled. And what did they do? They took the gospel with them. It's not to say there's never a time to flee. But rather, we are encouraged to take courage from our Savior who endured and would not let go of the work that God had sent him to do. Namely, to establish righteousness for his people and to be punished for our sins. And so we need to receive his grace and by the Holy Spirit endure with patience, share the gospel, do the good works that God has planned beforehand for us to do, to worship the Lord together and encourage each other all the while. This is the great work of our lives. And so we see how Jesus first overcomes deadly threats. And then secondly, how he overcomes the unbelief of Israel. And he begins here with what we can only call, um, this is what we would call uh, the lament over the nation. Luke has a lot to say about Jerusalem in his gospel. In fact, he has a lot to say more than any other writer of the New Testament. The word, the name Jerusalem, comes up at least 31 times in Luke's gospel compared to the 11 or 13 occurrences that occur in any of the other gospels. In fact, the only other book in the New Testament that has more references to Jerusalem with 59 references is the book of Acts. And guess who wrote that one? Luke. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem, as we said earlier. Then he slowly makes his way there to die on the cross. And here, Jesus adopts the mantle of prophet, like the other prophets before him, uh, and he prosecutes the nation of Israel. And what he says here is a big deal. Jerusalem was the capital city of the people of God. It, it, and in doing so, it functioned as a representative for the nation, for the people. It was the place where the temple resided, the place of God's blessing and presence. It was the place where kings had lived, where sin was paid, where prayers were offered, offered and God would commune with his people. And Jesus declares that the people of Israel, God's own covenant people, they are the ones who kill and stone the prophets that he sends. And prophets are those who bear the word of God on God's behalf. They are commissioned by God and they speak for him. 
They speak truth to power, serving as a check against wicked kings and rulers. To kill the Lord's prophet was to reject God's word and God's authority. And if that word from the Lord is the call to repent, then it is a rejection of repentance, a rejection of belief in the kingdom of God, a rejection of the offer of the, God, the kingdom itself. And so Jesus expresses sorrow and grief over the city and indeed the nation that it had been in covenant with the Lord so long. But they refused to repent. And so he declares that their house is forsaken. The temple, the city, is no longer the place of God's special presence and blessing. Yes, it's true that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed in decades to come by Titus. But even more significantly, the blessed presence of God would no longer reside in the temple complex in the building in the holy of holies but in the people who come to him by faith in his son jesus that is the new temple that is the new place in the book of in the book of revelation the city of god is made of his people and this causes us to contemplate both the desire of the savior and the responsibility of men We need to note the tender desire here of Jesus and how he compares his feelings. And and this is not a new thing. The Old Testament does this often. Uh, But but how he compares how he feels for Israel uh, to a hen desiring to gather her chicks under her wings. But they were not willing. Now, some might object to saying, well, you know, but wasn't this part of God's plan for the Jews to reject Jesus that he might be killed and raised from the dead and the Gentiles be brought in? We say, yes, absolutely. But let's remember also that the cross and suffering and death are part of the plan as well, yet it's not said anywhere. Jesus says, I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait till I get beaten and condemned and, you know, stripped naked and and brutalized and nailed to a cross. I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be really easy for me to go through. The book of Hebrews says he despised the shame of the cross. But he knew what it would produce. And so he went gladly looking to the end of it, looking to the, produce, the, the production of it, looking to the resurrection and the ascension and the glory. But he did not look to the cross itself with gladness as if he loved to suffer, as if it were no small thing. Likewise, it is no small thing For the temple and Jerusalem to be declared forsaken by the Lord, it is a painful thing. And also consider that while this all does fall into the broader plan and the will of God, men are yet responsible for their sin. Their house is forsaken, not because God simply wants to do it or because he ultimately wills it, but because they have rejected God's word. They have rejected the call to repent and to believe the gospel. That is why their house is forsaken. And so it's, a, it's, an important, it's important to understand that as much as we believe in God's sovereignty, that God's, 
God's sovereignty does not negate the responsibility of men. We cannot sin and blame God for it because it must have been in his ultimate will for us to do so. Because he is not the author of sin and not responsible for it. But note what sadness Jesus has for those who refuse to repent and believe, especially the Jewish people. And we see this also in the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, where he laments sorrow. He says, I would, he even says, look, I would be willing to be condemned if it meant that all Israel would turn. I'd be willing to go to hell if all my Jewish brothers and sisters could go to heaven, if they would trust in Christ. All right. Like that's how Paul feels. That's how much he loves and how much he hurts for his fellow Jewish people. And yet, that is not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of this brings us to the question, a very basic question. It's a question that I often ask people in a, in a counseling situation, people who are wrestling with things. They've got things they don't want to let go, things that they're trying to, they're, 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 their life, they're trying to make sense of what their life is. It's all chaotic and they don't know it. Uh, often a, it's a very blunt question is, what do you want? You'd be surprised how often that will throw people back. Because how often do you get asked, sincerely, genuinely, what would you like to happen? What do you want? What are you after? What is your goal here? See, we're, we get lost in the details, don't we? We wake up and we have this obstacle thrown at us and this thing and this snag and this other stuff like that. We get lost and we lose sight of the thing it is that we actually desire, the, the thing that we actually want. And sometimes we realize that the thing we want is the wrong thing. Sometimes it's the right thing. But it's an important question to ask. Because many people want good things, but they also don't want to do what's necessary in order to get them. It's not a new thing. Uh, Esau wanted the blessings of the birthright, but he didn't want the God that came with it. He didn't want the responsibility that came with it. Israel often wanted the material blessings of God, that, 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 the things that he could provide, but they didn't want him. They just wanted to be like the nations around them. And even today, many want the blessings that true religion can bring, but they don't want the God who gives them. They don't want the Savior who saves them. They don't want to engage in the repentance and trust that is required in order to be saved. Nobody wants to be condemned. Nobody does. But it doesn't mean that people don't want to be condemned, that they want a Savior. Many just want to dispute that why they, why they ought not be condemned. I'm actually a pretty good person after all. I'm not that bad. I'm better than that guy. I'm all right. What are you? Who are you to say something to me, right? I don't want a Savior. I don't need a Savior, but I don't deserve to be condemned. And the point here that we need to take home is that every other house is forsaken except for the one that Christ has built. Every house that we would build, every kingdom that we would erect, every temple that we would build to some other God or some other thing, even to ourselves, is forsaken except for the one that Christ has built. The house that is made of living stones 
made of the very people of God who have been delivered from darkness into light. He has done this by his death for our sin and his resurrection for our eternal life. What is it that you want? Do you want eternal life? Do you want Jesus? Because Jesus has overcome the threats of death and even the unbelief of Israel. And, amongst, uh, and, that, and those two amongst many other obstacles that he might be your true Savior. If we desire life and blessing, then let us repent of our worldliness, repent of our sin and our pride, and trust in the only one who can save us. And let we who have already believed, we who follow Jesus, who declare, yes, he is, he is our Savior, let us set our eyes upon him once more, that we may overcome every obstacle by his grace and power and attain the end of our race, the goal for which we are running, the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a true Savior, a true Savior who has overcome the unbelief of Israel, overcomes the threats of men, and even the threats that ultimately are made good. For while he does not die in Galilee, he does die in Jerusalem. But he rises again. And he brings renewal and life to all who believe in him, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Lord, we pray that you would remind us about what it is that we want, what is it that we truly need, and that we would seek after Jesus, that we would see every other house, every other temple that man has built as a forsaken house, and that we would seek only the house that is built by Christ. And Father, we pray that you would bless us that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a joy as we rejoice in our glorious and blessed Savior. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.